Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board. Telecomcareers.com. CR Wireless News, and you're joining us for this week's Coders. Uh, I'm actually in Atlanta, Georgia. Our guest is in Knoxville, Tennessee, Victor Greta. Uh, but a bit about the Co- uh, Competitive Carrier Association. This is their annual Global Expo. Uh, they're having panels upstairs. We're set up down here in the exhibit area. I'm wearing a little swag from uh, Ambro Structures, which is a tower company, and I always love a little swag here. Here's here's from the next booth over, and just take a listen to this. You bet. It's going to be a great day. Thank you for joining us on Coders. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the rise of the developer, and uh, I'm going to play a short segment based on an interview we had with Jason, uh, Jason Hoffman, who is head of telco strategy, telco cloud strategy for Ericsson. So Victor, before we jump in and introduce you, I want to play this, uh, this quick segment. Things like PHP developers to, to Ruby on Rails to Node.js to people still doing things in Java or C or C++ or Go or, or someone like that. that. That's a platform that supports all of those, those runtimes and those, those environments. Um, and um, you know, at least in the case of uh, you know Ruby on Rails and Node.js, I mean, I was around those communities. My old company did Node.js, and and uh, and uh, we hosted Ruby on Rails.org and all of that stuff back in the day. And um, and I think you know part of, part of it is is you know the the thing that's happened over the last ten years really is the rise of the developer. I mean, if you think of what the global phenomena is. Uh, it really is that um, um, a lot of a lot of the legacy applications are being rewritten in new frameworks and new runtimes and new languages and so on, so on like that. Um, we even see that you know all of a sudden a language like Erlang became exceptionally popular in sort of the web scale world. I mean, it's Facebook chat and WhatsApp and all those things are. Are written in a, a telecom language, you know, that we we open sourced a number of a number of years ago. So I think you see a lot of that sort of coming together. But but the the global phenomena is is exactly the the rise of the developer. Um, and uh, you know what we've been trying to do, particularly on that that platform as a service, or even just this requirement that cloud systems are supposed to be highly accessible, programmable systems. Then of course the people that Consume them at the end of the day are programmers, um, and I think you know a lot of a lot of the the product drive inside of that is around making their life easier. Victor, thanks for joining us today. You are executive producer of Super Pixel Studios, uh, former editor in chief of Two Awe, and uh, in reading your bio on LinkedIn, it sounds like you've also been a, a game design instructor. Victor, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've had a chance to look at the video segment we just showed, and it's. Um, uh, Jason Hoffman, who some would say is a true rock star in building hyperscale cloud uh, environments. He's now the telco cloud uh, head of strategy for Ericsson, and I interviewed him at Mobile World Congress, and during the course of that interview, he used a lot of acronyms that frankly had my head spinning. And uh, so what we'd like to do is, is, is start by the comment he made about the rise of, of the developer. And, and maybe walk us through kind of your perspective of the last 10 to 15 years in terms of the rise of developer. Well, it's been interesting because for a long time, you sort of had these monolithic programming languages. I mean, back in the early days, Fortran and COBOL, procedural programming languages that people went to school, they learned those, and that's what you use for maybe 20 years. 
now what you have is a proliferation of platforms and programming languages and it's really become incumbent upon developers to pick and choose and figure out what's the best fit you know on the web there are dozens upon dozens of languages there are frameworks everything from things that the user might see and interact with like javascript type things to things on the server end like ruby on rails that allow people to scale and build applications on the website very easily so it really is just a matter of choice. It's a matter of the explosiveness of the industry, the fact that everyone has gadgets in their pockets, everyone has a supercomputer in their pocket, really, compared to just a few years ago. So what we've had to do is the companies have really backfilled the tools in order to catch up to the technology. A great example is actually what Apple has done with Swift. And of course, Swift is a very high-level language, but it accesses a lot of low-level stuff, and it's made it so that programmers can do code that is simpler, easier to understand, and yet just as powerful as Objective-C has been in the past. How acute is the demand for programmers today? It's pretty, uh, it's pretty out there because, you know, we, again, we have this sort of thing where the market took off and we didn't have enough people to backfill. And so what I've found is that there are a lot of gifted programmers out there that you'll see that don't necessarily have computer science degrees, but they are very good and they've learned from either writing iOS apps, because there's always stories of these like six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds writing apps for iOS. And you know that's just embracing the tools that are out there. I was a kid, when I was eight years old, I was writing basic programs on my Apple II. So I, I know how this is, but what's cool is that people can actually deploy these things now. And even though there is a somewhat of a shortage of programmers, the fact is, is that they're out there, it's harder to find them now. So in your opinion, where, or where and how are developers learning these different types of coding software? Well, I'd love to say that they're learning it in universities and computer science classes and whatnot, but really a lot of it is just, you know, practical use. And you'll learn, of course, in a computer science program, you'll learn basics of patterns and all the other basics that you need to learn. But so many people have jumped out into the workforce and something like Ruby on Rails, uh, a lot of the programming languages, Swift, they're fairly easy to pick up. And that's actually been a great thing for developers overall is that they've made these more compact and they've made them more powerful. And so much of the features have been baked in by companies, whereas before you had to roll everything yourself. You know, if you wanted something to happen, you had to write hundreds of lines of code. Now that's compacted into a framework. So you literally make one line of code that calls that capability, and boom, it's there for you. Got it. Um, in a minute, we're going to talk about some of the specific acronyms, but uh, I want to come back to one of the other comments that Jason made was that mobility and mobile is really having a profound impact on uh, this, this rise of the software developer. From your experience uh, looking at devices and applications and game design, maybe can you share with us how those um, architectures and uh, uh, developer community have evolved over the, even the past five years with the rise of mobile broadband? It's really been striking to see mobile take force, but at the same time, it makes a lot of sense. When we started with personal computers, that meant in your kitchen or maybe your living room or maybe dad's office or something like that. But now people are carrying around computers in their pockets. So we really are at personal computing now and I think that's the biggest thing is, uh, you know, mobile devices are not just a phone. It's sort of, it's the difference between going from a telephone to a personal computer and you're emailing people, right? So now that you have that, the proliferation of that, the explosive growth of mobile phones and smartphones, 
tablets to a lesser degree, but that has been a huge boon and it's just been a driver of all of these other things of, of the technology and the programming. So Victor, thanks for your insights on the rise of developer. Uh, next, I'd like to move into a discussion about the languages and terms Jason mentioned in his interview. And uh, I think one of the things that uh, I'm not as familiar with are, are frameworks and runtimes. What does, he, what does he mean when he talks about frameworks and runtimes and really the, the new frameworks and new runtimes? Well, the main thing to keep in mind is that you have frameworks that are built in so developers can use these tools. And I think a good example is every year at WWDC, Apple announces a whole set of new frameworks for whatever new iOS is coming out. And what this does is allows developers to tap into functionality within the hardware that maybe they didn't have access to before, or maybe they had to write a lot of code for. And so by adding these frameworks, they're actually giving developers the opportunity to utilize new technologies, you know, things where if the Wi-Fi isn't available, it maybe uses the cellular and it hands that off seamlessly as opposed to saying, oh, I can't find a connection, reconnect. Um, in terms of runtimes, those are the sorts of things that users probably see a lot more of because that's something that's actually happening in, in their browser or something that's happening like right in front of them basically. It's not compiled code that happens on the back end. It's not something that's it's deployed in a slightly different way. But again, all of those things are giving the developers flexibility and more power tools to be able to do things. So if you want to craft your site to look a certain way across different devices, that's what some of those things would be used for. And really all it is is just, it's more tools for the developer to use. It's like arrows in a quiver. Okay. One of the other things that he mentioned, and certainly uh, I'm aware of when I've talked to people about software development, is you've got the, the, the legacy BSS OSS from the telco world, which is largely based upon C, C++, or even C Sharp. And then you hear terms today like Java, PHP, Ruby on Rails, and Python. And, and even on the database side, unstructured databases with the Hadoop and Cassandra. Why don't you maybe at a high level, and if you want to geek out on us and get into some of the details, what are some of the differences between C, C++, and some of these newer Ruby on Rails and Python? Well, you know, there are, uh, it's one of those things where that now there's so much. We could do a huge grid and we could say, okay, well, there's this and there's that. Um, I think that one thing to look at is the balance between the simplicity and the compactness of the code, which can be very important on mobile, of course. If you're deploying something that needs to download a lot of, uh, a lot of things, a lot of, just a lot of bits, basically, then you wanna to try to reduce that, both for network traffic and for the consumer. Um, but you also have to look at scalability. So some of these things like C++, which is a, an older language than Ruby, uh, you wanna balance that with the sort of reliability of those languages and the longevity of those languages. So Ruby is great for getting up to speed very quickly, but it doesn't necessarily scale over time. PHP was one of those things that was developed because they wanted it to scale uh, very well and massively scale. And in fact, at AOL, our CMS was built on PHP. But as you may know, Facebook actually modified PHP to the extent to where it's its own language now within Facebook because they had a scaling problem of an order of magnitude greater than almost everybody else has had. I mean, this is why Facebook has very little downtime is because they actually tuned PHP to do what they wanted and focused really on that scalability. So whenever you're looking at these things, you know, these low level languages up to the higher level languages, it's a question of like, what are you comfortable with uh, and what do you want to do? If you want to go really fast and you want to just try something out, there's Ruby on Rails, and that's a little bit higher level language. Mm -hmm. If you get down to C, 
that's lower level, more powerful, but it's a lot more complex. Okay. Uh, he also mentioned Erlang, and I've heard others mention Erlang as a telco developer platform. Uh, I did a, um, a Google search this morning to understand what Erlang tables are relative to uh, you know, traffic patterns on, a, on a, a switch network, but I've never heard it used in the context of a software developer language. And, you know, according to Wiki, it was developed by Ericsson, and uh, there's also a site called Erlang.org, and when you read the fine print, it's uh, kind of controlled by uh, Ericsson. Um, and, and Jason mentioned it's used for communication systems like Facebook, chat, and, and WhatsApp. So tell me, what is Erlang? And then we're going to talk about when something's called open source, but it's controlled by one company, what does that mean in terms of who maintains the code? Right. Well, Erlang is sort of an interesting thing. The reason it was designed by Ericsson was really for reliability. Uh, Erlang is not like those other languages we talked about. Those are really object-oriented languages. And what this means without getting too deep into it is more about scaling things for multi-core processors and making sure that you don't have memory conflicts and all sorts of other things. If anyone who's ever done any development has had something crash, you probably know what I'm talking about already. The cool thing about Erlang is, and in, anyone who knows about servers will tell you five nines of uptime is absolutely critical, right? They're up 99.999% of the time. Erlang was developed, logically enough, by a telecom company because they needed that reliability. And so Erlang is a really solid, uh, I don't want to say crash-proof language because any developer could make something crash, but it's really, really designed to give people that stability, which is why Facebook uses it, which is why WhatsApp uses it. For communication tools, it's really, really effective because it has solid uptime and it's a fairly compact language. The difference is, is that people who learned object-oriented programming have a little bit of an adjustment because it is a different metaphor. It's just a different way of approaching the same problem, which is you know taking inputs and giving outputs but it's super, super solid. Um, and that's, that's really Erlanger. That's the main thing you need to know about Erlanger is that it's, it's very, very, uh, it's just as powerful as about anything else, but it's a, a lot more reliable. Okay. Well, earlier you mentioned Facebook had, had modified PHP from a, to make it more resilient, reliable, in a web scale environment. How did you compare and contrast basic PHP or modified PHP to Erlang relative to scale, scalability? Um, well, Erlang definitely, have, we've seen, has been able to scale very reliably. So I would say that PHP, which is still amazing, I mean, it, it's, it's just an absolute workhorse, is very good. It's just one of those things that you have to apply a lot more developer resources to make sure that you scale beyond a certain point. Uh, Erlang is, is not necessarily it's uh, better at scaling. It's just that it's overall more stable. And because of the way that it's constructed, it's just better at protecting uh, user sessions and whatnot. There's a lot of little fiddly bits that we could get into, but the main thing is that PHP out of the box is something that you can start with. Erlang is something that you might want to build a communication layer with Got so it. that everything talks to each other. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about uh, kind of open source for a minute. And you, know, you, you heard years ago, Red Hat, Linux, and, and open source, and now anytime you hear a conversation about virtualization or NFV or SDN, you're hearing about open source and telcos are very interested in open source to reduce their CapEx and OpEx. But when I look at Erlang and I look at Erlang.org and it's open source, but it's controlled by Ericsson and, and you know, you've got um, OpenStack and Open Daylight and all these other guys. At the end of the day, uh, everyone wants a proprietary competitive advantage. So when you talk open source, who really maintains the code and, 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 and what does it mean when 
uh, something like Erlang is really controlled by an Ericsson? Well, open source is more of a definition of something, uh, and it's not listen, you know it's not enforced by the U.S. government or, or anything like that. It's it's really just an agreement that people who use this here's what we're going to do with this code. You know, we're going to, if you take something and modify it, that just means you have to contribute. And there's actually different levels of open source and different levels of ownership as well. It's kind of like the creative commons, you know, copyright sort of situation. And in this case, it's not unnatural for a company to say, well, you know, we've developed this tool and now we're going to release it as an open source project. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to kill the original project and it actually means that they can say well there's this open source version and we're going to keep our proprietary version which may have some advantages and a good example of that again is Apple when it came up with or when it started using WebKit and it actually released WebKit as open source and said you know you guys can make this and it was khtml and they ended up getting in some trouble with some of the open source folks because they weren't actually following the letter of the agreement that comes with open source and that is one of those things that companies have to look at is almost everyone is using some open source. If you're really deploying something big like an operating system, chances are you've, you've used some kind of open source tool or framework or something in there. But the, the question is, how are you playing with that down the road? Are you taking it and then modifying it but not releasing back, you know, and was that part of the agreement? So this is where companies come into problems with that. Uh, in terms of Ericsson, it's also one of those things where companies have to have sort of a good faith, right? And if Ericsson says, yeah, we're going to release this for open source, the understanding is that they won't say, you know what, no more of that. We're going to take it back. Think about what that would do, the ripple effect. People have used Erlang in their code, right? They're like, okay, what do we do now, right? So it's unlikely they would do that too because that would be publicity, bad publicity for Ericsson. But also it would kind of mess up the tools that these guys were using to build these things. So it is kind of a strange thing You say, well, there's not necessarily a profit center in that. But a lot of times these open source projects yield benefits that don't necessarily show up on a, on a spreadsheet. And, you know, it, it's like uh, NASA research, right? There's spinoff technologies that come from these things. So a lot of companies see this as a worthwhile investment, even if it's not something they're going to make dollar for dollar back. All right, let's talk about, uh, you know, where we are today. And, and uh, clearly the world evolves around software it really and, and mobile. If you're a system architect, for either a game or a telco software or even a device application, how do system architects make decisions around which framework and which language they're going to use to develop or transition uh, an existing platform? That's really one of the toughest questions right now that I'm seeing people grapple with because there's a lot of, uh, frankly, there's a lot of consulting to be done in migrating systems. Of course, you probably know that coming from this industry taking those legacy systems and, and updating them, or at least having some communication between the legacy systems and newer, more scalable platforms. So the best thing I can tell people is really just do your research and look at how these things have been implemented and look at who's been implementing them. Try to find something that best matches your use case because almost all of these can be extended and modified. And I mean, you could fit Erlang into something, you know, a game, make games with it, but is that really the best use of it? Probably not. So that's where I recommend people go to conferences, people, you know, do the homework and really look up and see how these things are being used. And chances are, if everyone's using Ruby to do X, you're going to be safe doing X. If you try to do something like Y, then make sure that a couple of people have already tried that out before you go into it. 
Got it. Well, let's, uh, given your, you, you, you have some experience from a game design and, and, and software development standpoint, and you've also been as editor-in-chief of, of 2AW, you've looked at all the applications for iOS devices and other devices. Kind of walk me through uh, the evolution of developing code for the cloud uh, versus devices and consoles and, you know, the games. It has been uh, a fascinating shift because, you know, I remember getting microzines and shareware on floppy disks through the mail, right? So now developers, it's sort of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, cloud allows people to do things like save data to the cloud, but, and that's super handy because I can go to my Xbox or I can go to my Microsoft PC and I can, you know, I can open up and I can get saved game data for both of those uh, things because it's saved in OneDrive. But the problem with that is for developers, they have to be very, very careful about how that data is maintained. So the data integrity, you don't want to have collisions. You know, I've got Xbox and Microsoft and my PC open. What happens when I try to save on both at the same time? And again, that's actually one of the advantages of Erlang, by the way, is that it knows how to manage certain things like that. But Cloud uh, has added a whole other level of complexity because now you also have to negotiate network traffic. You have to check and make sure. Uh, this is a good example of where Microsoft had a problem over the Christmas holiday because a lot of things wouldn't work when they were having a DDoS attack. And I couldn't even play a Blu-ray because I couldn't download the Blu-ray app because it was stored in the cloud. It didn't come pre-installed. Whereas, you know, just a few years ago, if you took your Wii out of the box and plugged it in, everything worked fine. You didn't have to download updates or anything like that. Now, the double-edged sword is that developers also feel like, well, we can ship code partially complete, and then we can update it later because we have this, you know, network access. And so people are accustomed now to that network access. But it is tricky because you have to be careful with data and you have to have a backup plan, essentially, for when there is no network. Got it. Well, before we sign off um, uh, and close today's episode, could you maybe tell us about your Twitch TV program, Angry Dad Games? Yeah, Angry Dad Gamer uh, is something that we came up with because I love video games and I love watching Let's Plays. This is where people play and they comment and whatnot. And Twitch TV actually just was originally Justin TV, if you remember that. So speaking of network stuff, these guys have been in it for a long time. They were way ahead of the live streaming curve. Right. And uh, they pivoted to video game-centric plays. And, so, and then they were bought by Amazon last year. So I think it's an interesting model. And what we're doing with Angry Dad Gamer is uh, a lot of Let's Plays where I bring comics in, I bring musicians in and other artists, and they play video games. And we get these wonderful reactions to stuff that they've never played. And there's so much creativity in the game industry right now. It's really fun to just let them access some of that creativity as well. Well, we look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks. I think uh, April 13th and 14th, you're going to be in Austin. So we're going to try to twist your arm to do one of your uh, shows from our RCR ATX Studio Lounge. Um, before we sign off, I want to leave our readers with a big thank you for joining us from the Competitive Carrier Association for this week's coders. Victor, thanks for joining us and sharing your insights. But I do want to close with showing one of my favorite clips of Steve Ballmer, uh, which I think epitomizes his enthusiasm for the developer community. Uh, Victor, thanks. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you. Developers, 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 developers. Developers, 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 developers. Yes.
Coders is a production of RCR-TV. To reach Jeff Mucci or to suggest a show topic for Coders, you can find him on Twitter at Jeff Mucci. For all the latest news on wireless code and the whole world of wireless, check out rcrwireless.com.